0: Hello there guys and welcome to an extra long episode of Genuine Chit Chat. This week I'm joined by the puppet master, Michael McCormick. So guys, Michael McCormick, one interesting guy, I was so excited to release this episode It's an extra long one, but instead of splitting it in two parts, I'm releasing it all at once here and also on YouTube Michael McCormick has worked on Star Wars, he created the character Salacious Crumb, he also worked with Jim Henson on Dark Crystal and on Labyrinth, he's met David Bowie, he did some of the aesthetics for his costumes and whatnot, I mean we speak about a huge amount of things in this conversation all relating to puppetry, and it was just so much fun, aside from the things I've just mentioned, he also talks about stories From onset, near-death experiences, Brian and Wendy Froud, his time teaching in the New Mexico State University, uh, as well as ideas for a new TV show, he's got loads of things to say, and it is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, So that's what I'm going to say in that regard. But I will also add, guys, make sure you go over to YouTube to check out this video as well. For clarity, the quality on YouTube isn't quite as good as this one because you know I've shortened silences, I've boosted quiet parts, I've kind of edited a bit more. I've tried to do that somewhat on the YouTube video, but my video editing resources here. Are limited but i want to clarify that because over on youtube and i've made some notes here as well which i'll put in the description but essentially at several points michael kindly shows me some of the puppets that he used some for punch and judy some were used in labyrinth there's some other cool ones as well he speaks about some at the start and then intermittently throughout the conversation so if you want to see the specific puppets that he is showing i'll be uploading a few pictures onto social media but if you want to see them in air quotes in action uh, then make sure you go over to youtube where the full conversation is on there and you can check that out too There's not really much else to add here, guys. Uh, Aside from, you know, you can check out more information on Michael McCormick. I've included a link or two in the description there as well. And yeah, I just really hope you guys enjoyed this chat. And please reach out to me and let me know because Michael would be thrilled to hear how much you guys enjoyed this episode. You can reach me on social media or email me or anything like that. Anyone who tells me anything cool about it, I will definitely pass over to Michael as I've got his email address and things. I just wanted to quickly add in, if you hear a weird Skype noise, that does happen in this conversation. It only happens a very small handful of times and is quite infrequent. I just wanted to flag, that's my bad. I was taking screenshots during being on Skype. I normally use Zoom, but we had Zoom issues, so we decided to use Skype because it was just working and Zoom wasn't. So I just wanted to flag that quickly. So anyway, guys, enough rambling from me. I present to you Michael McCormick, and I'll be back at the end to give more information on stuff. Welcome to Genuine Chit Chat, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. And I'm your host, Mike Burton. Right then, well I am here today with Michael McCormick. Um, I would call you a puppet master, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, Second only to potentially someone such as prolific as Jim Henson. But, you know, I think your work has gone quite underappreciated of the the amount that you've actually done and how there's so many people haven't heard of you so hello (laughs) please tell people about yourself and we can get into the puppet stuff we can play catch up now (laughs) bring me me into the
1: limelight right
0: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah so let's go on to it Um, first of all puppetry then Um, how did you actually first get into it out of interest How did I get involved just in general with puppetry? Yeah, because it's something that you you don't... I wouldn't assume someone kind of falls into puppetry. You know, it's something that I presume you have to kind of apply yourself into because there's a lot of skills that go into it. So what made you first pick up a puppet, I I suppose, in the way that you did? Um, That's an interesting question
1: because it goes back to 1943. Mm. My father made me a -a jack-in-a-box... I have it. I could show it to you if you want to spare me a minute. But I know right where it is. Um, and it was uh, a Punch figure in a Jack in a Box, as a Jack in a Box. Wow. And uh, I actually, I'm doing a series of the whole family of the Punch and Judy characters as Jack in a Boxes. Right now, I've started work on them. Oh, wow. And uh, the uh, it was... Uh, this thing appeared in my life. My mother's Norwegian so she sort of had more of a Scandinavian attitude towards boys playing with dolls than the puritanical American scene was offering <laughs> and uh, she supported it you know like a hundred percent and uh, and slowly the, I did my first puppet show I guess in the th- third grade Wow and I actually did a cream pie in somebody's face on the puppet. but it was which of course i didn't know how to do so it was a horrible glop of thing that i couldn't get it off the puppet's head (laughs) anyway we'll go into detail but uh, after that it went quite well until in high school taking you know creative writing the drama course uh and, and being interested at every level of theater and uh uh, I'm a trained sculptor as well. And, uh, I found myself even in recent times, constantly getting away from things like galleries and kind of, you know, here's me. (laughs) This is what I do. This is me. (laughs) And, uh, and, and just, uh, I found that, you know, my son loved the punch and Judy. He started when he was about six with the show, seven. And, uh, with the fellow I was partnered with at that time was a magician. So we had a complete hour long show that was, uh, the punch and Judy and then magic and, and, uh, Sean beat the drum until he was about eight. And at eight, my partner had heat stroke and couldn't do the show. So Sean got up and did the show and did it ever since. Oh, wow. So it was, uh, uh, it was funny. I was just talking to uh, his name's uh, Tony Camito, and uh, I was just talking. We had lunch yesterday, and I was talking to him uh, about about the show and how it started and the whole thing. But I have. Uh, let me show you. I got this. Is what it looked like. When Sean was. Oh wow, that's amazing. And that was that was uh, us when we did the show. Yeah. That's but, so cool. And we did it for all those years. And, of course, even when we were doing Dark Crystal and Labyrinth in London, we still performed every weekend we could down at uh, uh, sort of near at the Camden Lock,
0: mm. uh, just by Dingwalls. You know where Dingwalls is down there? Uh, no, I'm afraid I don't. But I will say with uh, in Punch and Judy stuff, though, I actually – it's funny you mention it in things. I, I looked up. I knew you were doing – you had been doing uh, Punch and Judy stuff. That's probably my earliest memory – of puppets and things because down in uh, weymouth uh, which is down the south of england that's a home one of mr punch's homes exactly yeah they've been playing punch and judy shows there like almost every day for decades and decades and decades My late father he used to go there when he was a kid so when you when i was looking you up at things i saw stuff at punch and judy i was like that's such like an english uh, cornerstone of puppetry
1: yeah yeah and it's interesting the way the seaside has fed into this thing because I've only performed in Dublin at the seaside, mm. and, uh, but I, I have uh, this ongoing relationship with the seaside town, like Weston Super Mayor, things like that. Mm. Dave Barkley, whose name you must know from Labyrinth and from uh, uh, Dark Crystal and from uh, everything, you know, Little Shop of Horrors, yes. English Puppeteer. And I was talking to Dave the other day, and we were talking about, he had told me that his grandfather, his grandfather, had built the little, when you're at Western Supermare, these little scenes, these little puppet scenes that you put in a penny and the things jiggle and joggle and seem to tell a story. And it was his grandfather who had built those. And I thought, oh, my God, this thing comes full circle, you know, (laughs) and sort of, you know, and bites you on the backside, as they say. uh, (laughs) But it's uh, uh, it takes you down paths that you're only too delighted to go, and it takes you down a few that you would rather have died than go down. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, you know it's it's uh, quite a remarkable archetype that gets underappreciated, and punches certainly all by himself is beyond puppetry is is a is a, a an archetype in and of himself, of course. Mm. Which uh, is something I've always appreciated from the very beginning, and it's it, it always had this kind of psychological edge to it. Jung, you know, mm. let's talk what Jung felt about puppets, and you know, we know Peeps saw Punch, but do we think Jung maybe saw him? But he does speak about this type of thing, you know, uh, uh, often, and it's. Uh, Uh, As a matter of fact, Sean and I performed for the Jungian community on a couple of occasions at the University of Notre Dame. They got us in to do it. And at the University of Dallas, they got us in to do it as well. That was James Hillman and Tom Kapasinkas. These are the big names, you know, in uh, uh, archetypal psychology. We don't call it Jungianism, right? (laughs) He didn't want to be an ism
0: yeah what's interesting with puppetry and things is that the the community because you were just you know you mentioned quite a few individuals there like uh dave barkley and that sort of thing and obviously i mentioned jim henson slightly earlier um are individuals who work in puppetry in a lot of the uh films and productions that use it uh, are you generally all quite connected outside of production work
1: yeah we uh, no outside of production time uh most likely not most puppeteers do not fraternize with the enemy so to speak <laughs> <laughs> the, the enemy being somebody who wants to steal your secrets of manipulation right <laughs> but it's 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 uh it it's kind of true There, the uh, i did i gave a lecture one night at uh, trinity in, in dublin and uh, tommy baker showed up who's mm. certainly the best puppeteer in all of ireland um and uh, I'd already known uh, uh, the professor in the theater department who handled puppetry. Same name as mine, same spelling. Oh, wow. <laughs> the chances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here he is, uh, a McCormick. Mm-hmm. And I found out, and this is something I wish somebody would check for, you know, double check for me. Uh, I did a fair amount of research, and the name McCormick kept showing up regarding puppetry all the way through any history I could access. Uh, and even at the moment, I think I, I think I counted six different puppeteers, some that didn't even know each other in Ireland, who did the Punch and Judy and were named McCormick. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it got scary. You know, uh, I was in Leitrim, which, of course, is, you know, the most retarded of all Irish counties. <laughs> and, uh, I think they would agree, certainly economically. And, um, uh, that's actually sort of the area that my family came from. I was always told something else, uh, like New Jersey. No, <laughs> it was like, they always said, you know, someplace, Oh, it uh, was in the South someplace. It was, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, everything's in the South. If you're from the North, of course. And it, uh, but it, it, uh, Absolutely insane the way my family kept showing up in the thing.
0: Mm. Yeah, It's with the coincidences that kind of come across in that those sort of realms are very bizarre. And maybe it traces back to just sort of some puppeteer from like thousands of years ago, and he's just somehow spawned everyone who's now a major puppeteer. Maybe it's some sort of part. So in linking with that, actually, what is it about puppetry? That intrigues you so much obviously when you see things like dark crystal labyrinth etc you see it sort of the top end of what it can do and obviously not everyone sees that from the start so yeah. what what is it about puppetry that really intrigues you about it
1: well it's i i kind of fumble back into uh, sort of quasi psychology which i studied for quite a while in college but the uh that it's 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 such a a, a probing question because my whole theory and philosophy is that we're not dealing whatever puppet is it doesn't mean exactly what i mean Mm. and what i mean when i say puppet is effigy Mm. and effigy becomes far more intense than puppet i see and it's you you are provoking other parts of yourself dramatically i mean are nine characters that you know as a punch man you that that's the least you can get away with, <laughs> and, uh, and you've also noticed that all the Judy and Punch shows have don't seem to last too long, <laughs> uh, which I haven't been able to figure out. That we're just not ready for it, and, uh, <laughs> but but that uh, that idea of effigy and its relationship, particularly to to, to uh, antique religion, if you would, uh, all the way back. To Neolithic, you know, to to Waldendorf stuff, uh, you know, cave paintings, uh, those drawings that they are actively attempting to make move on the wall, like nude descending a staircase, (laughs) you know, in that same way that, you know, repeat the image until it gives us the sensation of movement. And then I'm sure very shortly thereafter, puppetry literally began with the, the shaman, the religious people, uh, uh, doing things like uh, animals on sticks. Uh, mm-hmm shadow puppets on the wall with their hands which you know something like that may be linked to but nobody's done a major look at that from a theatrical base and i wish they would because we see it showing up in in american native american people uh historically it's all over there lots of comments about it but somehow or another the puppet community has been very slow in acknowledging that because it's sort of un- academically untested, untried, you know. So they avoid it or you may never teach again or, or whatever, you know, the punishment is for lying about puppets. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it uh, I'll tell you, it's so, it's so big. It has encompassed now my life. Uh, and it's, I will do other things. I, I make jewelry. I do an occasional piece of sculpture, but the focus is entirely on these people. Uh, Did I show you those? Oh, wow.
0: That's incredible. There's so many of them there as well. It's the faces that are the most intriguing part. As you say, they're kind of like a caricature, as you say, the effigy, but it is like you have to over exaggerate certain elements of them, don't you?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's uh, the same the same uh, problem, if you would, that uh, that any um, uh, cartoonist has translating the face into uh, the basic elements in the face that want to communicate mm-hmm. the idea of who that character is. So you get you know you get that that sort of thing. He may be a policeman, right? Mm-hmm. Right. But if you look at his face,
0: <laughs>
1: I mean, he does look like somebody you'd have seen on the streets or been afraid to approach the <laughs> Victorian night. But it's uh, and it's and what do you want to, you know, in his case, it's nothing but, you know, a bully. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you look at something like this is my blind man. Mm. And and he is so absolutely, eternally vulnerable. Mm, I see. How can he hurt? He hurts no one. And he gets bashed to death before our eyes. <laughs> because it, he coughs and spits on punch. Mm. Not entirely by accident.
0: <laughs> it's so intriguing seeing these things, because I, I, I love puppetry. It's very intriguing. How's that for a garment?
1: Yeah, and it belongs to the gentleman Shalabala. Mm. Shalabala. <laughs> Shalabala. Shalabala. Shut up already! I'm trying to you know, sort of it. Right.
0: I think with with puppets, it's like you have to craft almost the personality a lot quicker before their appearance cuz if with like other stuff you can create a character and then you know if it's a cartoon it's animated you just change the facial expression if you are and if it's a live action actor you you know you can add makeup and things but when it's a puppet a lot of the time you can change certain elements obviously their clothing but their actual facial expression kind of has to mirror what kind of character they're going to be doesn't it
1: that's why particularly in Punch and Judy unlike the Muppet show, which is facially flexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, God knows why, but it, it, that's, it is true. Uh, they don't last that long, but the, um, uh, I think you it's punch is a fixed scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The story is fixed pretty much in everybody's mind. And we don't suffer with that in America. <laughs> it's you lot, it's a- <laughs> and and it's. Uh, but I came to have an appreciation, having done so many shows for so many Irish audiences, English audiences, uh, uh, from little children, a little girl with her dad holding her coat in the background, who comes up to my stage and says, "May I see? May I talk to Mister Punch?" says she. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And Punch comes up, and before he can say anything, squawk, squawk, squeaker, you know, swazzle. And she says, Mr. Punch, why do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) And the only answer anyone ever has for that is, It's in the show, my dear. It's what we do. Why why do we throw the baby out the window? Because if you read the newspaper, there's usually in Victorian England, two or three of those a day. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we're just talking about a reality that you, my sweet little child, probably will not have to face in the way children in the Victorian period who watched The Punch and Judy had related to it in a completely different way. And it was much more at that time intended for adults anyway. Mm. But uh, we, always, it, at it, we, we always, at we always at Camden Lock, we always timed our shows so just when it was closing hours, right? They'd close up, come pouring out of there, this great drunken horde, and we'd start <laughs> the Punch and Judy. We'd get them all and we'd take all the loose change. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. It was the perfect situation. But it, that's all burned now, I guess. I, I don't know. It was a terrible, terrible disaster. It was a great, great place. Mm. But that was our pitch for, well, God, you know, one way or another five, six years that we, you know, could be seen at Camden Lock. Mm.
0: I mean, that's amazing. And moving on to sort of the production side of puppetry and whatnot, um, you were... Uh, heavily involved with it was the Skeksis wasn't it in the Dark Crystal yeah 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 so uh, if you'd like to speak somewhat about the creation of the Skeksis and just whatever you'd like to tell us about your involvement with Dark Crystal Brian Froud Jim Henson that that sort of realm the floor is yours there was
1: you know when I went on the show you have to remember I walked in off the street I had not talked to Jim I hadn't talked to anyone I simply had met the American songwriter, Western singer, Roger Miller mm-hmm. in Santa Fe. He liked my puppets. And on the street, he said, uh, has Jim Henson ever seen your puppets? I said, no, but is that an introduction? <laughs> and he said, yeah. And two weeks later, I was in London talking to Jim at ATV, you know, so at uh, in Elstree they were filming the last Muppet show that was done. And then everything switched over to, you know, attention to dark crystal, but it was, uh, so that was my first thing, right. Was building the first serious mock-up of a Skeksis costume that would function as a puppet. So somebody could wear it mm-hmm. and it was quite successful. And, uh, finally going out to uh where do we do that pine pinewood i think maybe yeah maybe uh, uh, ozzy morris was at pinewood filming something and uh, uh he uh, came out of retirement to do the dark crystal and he had a whole magic box full of filters and lenses and things with which he wanted to try some new techniques because it was his last shot <laughs> which he did, and that's what you see, and he and all the decisions he made were, of course, absolutely right. We, as functioning artists, were disgusted with the whole thing because we were losing about twenty percent of the of the detail of everything, mm. which was the best thing that could have happened because it was detail heavy, distractingly so, and Ozzy Morris saved us from that with his incredible genius, and uh, so Frank Oz me ozzy morris i can't remember nobody else to even attend the puppet except me and and we when it took it through its paces in so far as we could the head was uh, uh, obviously designed by brian froud executed by lyle conway who you don't hear much about these days and i have no idea why he did little shop of horrors too and he also did uh, return to oz with uh, walter murch and uh, the uh, so there you know and then then i proceeded to be tested by the system mm-hmm. so that was here work on this for a little while nope take it away give it to somebody else now let's see you work over here but and i was supposed to be sculpting the body for the naked Skeksis. But a woman came on, a young woman, very talented sculptor, named Sarah Bradpeace. She's rather well known, and uh, uh, hasn't done a lot of films. But uh, she's as she, she returned to being a sculptor, right? Of which she, as I said, was really quite good. And uh, when that was happening, I was, you know, it was again. Well, why don't you do this now? Let's do. Uh, yeah, you want to give us a, build a prototype for the land strider. Okay. Brian did me a sketch and it was a kind of a large grasshopper type of creature, which I built, which nobody liked. So it got (laughs) taken away from me and, and given, and given to the team that, that put it on screen. And, uh, of course, uh, being, being a, an American in England working in the film industry is not the easiest thing because of the guilds, the unions, the, the, the pressure, the, uh, the fact that, honest to God, I swear, the entire theology of English unionism it came out of the pits, you know, and the attitude is still there. If you're one of the big guys in the union, you wear a long black coat. And, and, and you terrify anybody who comes close to you. And that's, you know, that's the way it works. We have the same situation in New Mexico. The business manager of, of the union that I was with, the 480, uh, was um, AFL-CIO. So it was, you know, the top of the, the, the structure. John John Henry, name, had come from Scotland immigrated to america started restaurant catering did quite well and then got elected into the position in the union and he ran it as though you know he were the kind of i don't god what would you call him a a scottish coal miner with a death wish (laughs) And he encountered head-to-head situations and, you know, called strikes and did the whole thing until I was so disgusted. I just quit the union and started doing independence. So I was doing only independent films mm. uh, that, that weren't affiliated with uh, IA. So anyway, that, that changed. Obviously, everything changes. And I'm back in the reasonably good graces. Now that I'm too old to pick up a tool... I'm in their good graces and could work again. So, <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> but the uh, so anyway, my journey through dark crystal went. Then there was a, a little bit of space occurred, and Brian called me aside and said, "I'm doing these back plates on the Skeksis. Do you think you can do those monuments on their back that they wear, the sort of cathedral and the you know the." the uh, the scientist, with all his stuff in artificial arm moving and uh, so all of that came down to me which was just a total gift from brian i couldn't believe it so i finished all those they were all ready and i was saying okay so what happens move me on to the gartham which i had worked on early on the show and so I did the the hand mechanisms, the clamping things, those those puppeteering things. Made the arms work. Uh, and, uh, and working with Fred Nida, which I'd done earlier in the show, he's just a great, great guy, a genius fiberglass person, who did the armor for the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Mm. And uh, uh, he was renowned for it, and he was the perfect person to build those Gartham... Uh, terrifying creatures really they were pretty at the dream level you know very scary but uh, uh anyway they got that done and then boom! somebody comes in and you know names will not be spoken but uh, come in and say oh well we're uh, mike you're you're through we're moving you over here to and i began realizing that it was a faction that i was dealing with and it wasn't brian Brian immediately saved me from that situation that arose. I was being paid very little. And, uh, the, uh, as a matter of fact, I was financing the picture. I, I can't tell you <laughs> I had a large little lump of savings in New Mexico that got drawn upon continually just so we could survive in London. Oh, wow. Which as you know, ain't that easy no <laughs> it's uh, so anyway there i am sort of at, at my wits end there goes brian again he comes over and he says come on let's have a talk he said you know why i he just said this to me on the phone again about uh, six months ago and he said the reason i hired you we because you know how to make things look old now i want you to break down the skexies and it had to be done in secret because the seamstresses would have gone nuts I mean we were taking their hard work and and destroying it distressing it in the extremes they would have killed me I mean bad enough I could have been moved around to something no kill me on the spot (laughs) the famous you know the inserted singer sewing machine horror you know (laughs) How did this get inside his body? <laughs> uh, but it it, it just, uh, so I had an opportunity to work on basically every level that the Skeksis, the Strider started, you know, the prototyping stuff, working with people like Lyle, people like uh, uh, David Barkley, people like, uh, 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 our mechanic whose name is eluding me at the moment but uh, the um, uh, genius polish polish guy and uh, most a lot of the people we were working with had just also shut down what was that tale the flying white dog oh the never ending story thank you and it seemed that it was never ending <laughs> uh, so we were bombarded with those people who were had been doing just what we were doing mm. so it was a, a wonderful combination of english people coming back into the business saying oh my god what is this yank doing here is making everything you know schmutzy mm. and uh but everything that goes there and my wife was working at that time and my son was working but not she was working for a, a small salary my son was not just, just breaking his hump for, you know, uh, uh, as he brought his. He turned 16 on Dark Crystal wow. as we started up. Uh, and that, so I had to leave. I couldn't afford to stay. So that's when I switched over with Tony McVeigh to Return of the mm-hmm. Jedi, right? Or at that time, Blue Harvest or was it Revenge of the Jedi? <laughs> or was it... <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, whatever it was. And uh, so I did a year on that, and uh, I, I sort of starting. I just was getting... I had done nothing to myself in terms of injury on Dark Crystal. By the time I was a year into Return of the Jedi, I had had nine what I would have called life-threatening accidents. Wow. And I don't know if it was me or the situation or a combination of those two things because I was not a happy booby, as they say. I just. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, it, it was great in the sense that in the early days on that, I was puppet master on the show. And as puppet master, Phil Tippett gave me one of his... The biggest creature, I think, that had a man in it that he'd ever made, which was the elephant guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so I, Tony sculpted, I sculpted a bit on it, uh, uh, made the mold. The mold was horrendous. It was bigger than a bathtub. And uh, I did all the urethane and and, uh, latex work and built the thing. And it was the largest, dullest basically immobile creature the screen has ever seen. So working on it, I had this idea. I I built it so that one of the feet had an extension on it with a support that had a cane so he could hobble sort of an explanation for his slow movement. And, uh, and I thought, well, if I poked a hole in his arm, elephant guy's arm, and put my hand through that, I could still move the foot and the cane, but I'd have a free hand. I want a character to go on that hand. So I went to Tony and said, Tony, just under the table, because it'll never get approved, and it wouldn't have. I said, let's build a creature between a parrot and a monkey. And he turned out salacious and I helped him a little bit on the body, but he did it because I had to get the elephant man ready. And then there was that, you know, that horrific moment, right? When uh, ba-da, the door opens and George Lucas walks in and uh, we were going to show him the puppet. How does the elephant guy work? Well, he works like this, but he has this guy who sits on his arm just like this and like a, one of those birds in Africa that eats parasites off elephants, he does this nibbling thing, right? And I could get slight reactions for the elephant guy with a, literally taking a handful of urethane and just, <laughs> you know, so it was uh, the clumsy puppetry, but it sort of made one side sort of look like it was grimacing. <laughs> and uh and george said uh, you know i think you know we're looking at it but but uh, uh i you've got to tell phil tippett that that it's really too big to work in the scene that i envision and but so they use it in the cantina scene that, that you know that on the bark mm. and uh, uh but uh in the meantime uh, george said well he's, he's too big but what's this guy sitting on his arm? Could we put some feathers on his ears? <laughs> and that was the only direction we got on the puppet. In the meantime, you know, we had pissed off people at high levels. So, <laughs> And as I say, it became the hit of the show. And it, it just, I, I think it just was almost more than Phil Tippett, without killing me, could handle but uh, uh it was a head butting thing for you know a year and then that was over because i fell off size noodles one of the long nose i built a mechanism for her nose which was very clever because i could she could kiss herself on the cheek with just turn it completely around so it was a very interesting mechanism inside built with diminishing thicknesses of wire so the movement would be completely flexible Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she was up there being puppeteered by from behind with one main movement thing and then from below getting ready to do a hook up for the feet not figuring how I could do it and there was the big dog and pony show so everybody was coming through the guys from London, the guys from LA, the you know It was, uh, you know, there were people with long beards and white coats, you know, making strange religious symbols. I don't know what was going on. I've never seen any piece of pageantry in England that was up to matching a dog and pony show at Industrial Light and Magic. Everybody was in a state of shock. So these guys started coming through, and I'm trying to get her tuned up so I could show her to this group. And the damn scaffolding that I was standing on, the platform, started tipping forward. And I started falling into the tungsten wire that was holding her. And I thought, no, no, no. This is the world's largest cheese knife. And I don't feel too cheese-like. So I threw myself off to the side, got my arms stuck in some metal shelvings, fell to the floor, knocked myself out. And when I woke up, my left arm was not functioning. I couldn't lift it up. I couldn't do. Anything. I could do this, but the main ligament on the shoulder was in about ninety percent separation. stand. Oh. and uh, it took it took more than a year to uh, be able to do any serious puppetry whatsoever. And uh, so, anyway. I chose that and to leave and I think Phil was quite happy and I couldn't move and I wouldn't do the pub. I was supposed to do the puppetry in London and that didn't work. So what to do? Go away, which is the best thing you can conceivably do in theater. Go away. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, uh, it worked, got back to New Mexico, you know, Put the house right, did a bunch of repairs and the house, started working. That year grew into like a year and a half, maybe a little more. And the phone rings one day, and it's Lyle Conway saying, expect a call. Click and hangs up. <laughs> <laughs> so sure enough, the phone rings, and it's Jim Henson. And he said, uh, oh. <laughs> oh, oh, Mike. We're going again. Thanks, Kermy. <laughs> and Labyrinth fired up, and we were the first people hired onto Labyrinth. My wife, my son, me, and uh, in the meantime, Sean had done some pretty interesting stuff. He had, while well, I was closing down, having very little to do on Dark Crystal and being put in an office, as all I was going to do for the rest of the show was repair these very lightweight fiberglass units on their backs and stuff, their jewelry and stuff. That's a jewelry is another story too, because I did a lot of that stuff, much of what you see in the show, but the major larger pieces were done by a lady who came onto the show. Very pleasant young woman named Kathy Kubrick. And she was stepdaughter to Stanley. I was going to say. <laughs> and so I got introduced into the Kubrick world, and that was uh, very interesting. Uh, her mother did a performance in Paths of Glory that, that uh, I just cherish. It's one of the great moments for me in film, just intense, intense scene. Well, he liked it, too, and married her. So, And that was Loggerheads with Kurt Douglas, <laughs> you, want, you want the inside track on this stuff? You want to you, you wanna know why Spartacus didn't go
0: too well? <laughs> Behind closed doors. <laughs> and When you're there, like you're it's doing so- your work in the background and you get to see all of the stuff, the drama that goes on in front of That's you. That's it. Non-stop.
1: Non-stop. At the same time, I was spending lunches, had several lunches, trying to get a script going of my own with Androsi Epaminondas who was uh, Kubrick's, I'd say, line producer, project developer. Hmm. Uh, and uh, we got on really well. And I thought, maybe there's something in this. I'll you know, focus some energy on this. And he dropped dead. So that's has a lot to do with the rest of my film career every time something really cool happened they dropped dead i'm the only one who hasn't dropped dead yet but uh, the story will go full circle with with my copying but uh the uh, uh i'm trying to get back to where i was uh, That's pre- <laughs> uh you're on labyrinth uh... oh yeah on labyrinth and uh, so we came on and i i was able to do all the initial hiring the crew chiefs all of whom i knew with Brian talking, can we do, yeah, 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 yeah." so, and my wife was put in charge of putting the shop together, and she became the chief principal buyer, basically head of the shop, uh, and, uh, and, and I was going to say, my son, this is just before this happened, well, you know, a year before, when he was 17, 16, still 16, the, uh, filming this, uh, Uh, a crazy picture where this huge boulder (laughs) was rolling down i can't imagine what that was and sean worked on it wrecking out all the sets so he ended up with a pile of ephemera that is just you know at one point he had over 200 snakes (laughs) the rubber snakes that they used in the scene so i mean there were a lot of live snakes working in there too the famous one behind glass that's right in indy's face that they finally fixed it was great they cg'd that out i wonder why they didn't do that 10 years before but that's something else i guess i don't know very weird but anyway labyrinth starts up and uh and being in a strong position the first thing that I got asked to actually do, Brian and Jim were going to New York for a week, and Brian asked me if I could build a working prototype for Ludo. Mm, I love Ludo. Yeah, and you know I made it work. We made we made it work, so it became fe- It was a feasibility e- effort, and it worked
0: really well. And they went went forward with Ludo. He's a great character. Great. He is. I mean, my favorite part of the whole of Labyrinth, I think, is when towards the end, where he does the raw, and he summons the rocks, and you just see all the rocks coming out. And yeah. one of my favorite shots is when you see rocks rolling uphill. It just it cracks me up. It's just so silly, but it's so much fun. I love it. And I, I can't tell you. I don't know where else in the world, except
1: you know the, the the English studios. Those guys brought such a level of genius to some of that stuff, like those silly rocks. You know which, interestingly enough, worked in a similar fashion, same guys built them, to the bicycles in Central Park when all the Muppets mm-hmm. were on bicycles. Similar controls on, on the bikes and the and the stones and the common axles, and you know, they did such a job. These, you know, love working with those guys. Even if they wanted to kill me, I still loved working with them. <laughs> but it, uh, which I would, you know, go back and do in a heartbeat. If nothing else, just uh, you know, the 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 pub chat after a day's work can <laughs> makes, everything, makes everything all right. <laughs> <laughs> it does it actually succeeds in doing that when you buy your round? And but anyway, uh, our income changed significantly on Labyrinth,
0: and uh, it was great.
1: <laughs> Finally, getting
0: recognised in
1: in financially, yeah, yeah, a little financially. Anyway, in the meantime, I'm still butting heads with Brits, but uh, you know, it's, that's all right. You know, it, it, it's uh, w- when you go to Northern California and you're butting heads with people who are your, you know, nah, that doesn't work. I didn't like that. That didn't rest well. But the, uh, yeah, it's
0: a, uh, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's it's just I'm just thinking, you know, this stuff is flashing through my mind as we're talking.
0: Oh, I can imagine also so many, so much time on set. You know, when people see these films that are, you know, under two hours long, people don't often realise they take, you know, two, three, four, five, often years just to get.
1: Even oh, the yeah. concept
0: of beginning and then it's years and years of making everything. So when someone sits there and watches your work in an afternoon and you've spent substantial years of your life on like specific details of it, it's it's a weird thing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's it's uh, it's career killing. Mm.
1: In many cases, you've been gone too long and people forget who you are and what you did. The producers, you know, and you don't get called back on. And it's ter- terrible. Hmm. Luckily, when when Labyrinth was over, I came back to the States and there was a big hullabaloo about me, you know, back in the state working again. The studio's open and I immediately get called by uh, a film that Terrence Hill was making with Bud Spencer that was called uh, uh, Fight Before Christmas. And I sort of got, you know, uh, blanket uh, huge amounts of stuff to do on that including a chance to do the Punch and Judy on screen, which was cool.
0: Oh, that's amazing.
1: Yeah, so if you can find that, uh, an English version of it, check it out. Fight fight Before
0: Christmas. Yeah, I'll definitely make a note of that. Uh-huh. I also want to ask, um, speaking of, obviously, the Frouds have been sort of touched upon a little bit. And I know of Brian Froud because uh, my sister-in-law loves his concept art and a lot of the stuff that he does with his drawings of fairies and those sort of things so i just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about brian froud and obviously wendy froud and you know their son toby froud was the baby in labyrinth so i just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about you meeting the frouds and how they are really brian brian told me toby credits me with getting him into the business
1: Hmm. so i thought that was kind of nice but toby's a, a sweetheart of a kid and uh now that he's you know, a 45-year-old man. <laughs> <laughs> that happens. I don't know how that happens. That one still remains unexplained. But you you drop your hat, and you, drop, you bend over to pick it up, and by the time you stand up again, 20 years has disappeared from your life. And it's, it's just literally like that. Mm. You will have that experience. And it's frightening, and in a strange way humiliating, in a good way. Uh, it brings it brings down any or what would I call it puff mm-hmm. that you may have acquired along the way. It diminishes that, you know, enormously, and, and you're just happy to have done what you've done, and you want to keep it going somehow. You know. but it's. Uh, i've you know i've done quite a bit some acting and stuff here in new mexico so there's sort of you know it all kind of equals out at the end and that's which is kind of cool kind of cool and now you know trying to put the show back together again to uh, the one place that i really miss is the
0: street is is shaking the dolls on the street (laughs) I can imagine and just some of the interactions especially with like children like that young girl you spoke about it's just nice seeing children who may not have seen things like Punch and Judy before especially in the age where everything is animated you know you watch movies and stuff and there's so much CGI and that sort of stuff and there's something about practical effects that, in a lot of ways are so timeless you can watch Labyrinth or Dark Crystal you don't have to worry about the special effects becoming bad because the the puppetry and all of them they look like a real they, well they are real aren't they because they're, they're physically there yeah. so you don't lose that oh that looks rubbish in 20 years because it still looks like a real the skeksis for example they still look like real terrifying things and that will never change
1: well even even the new dark crystal the one you know just recently released yeah. uh there are no basically no effects in that Ooh. there might be background stuff but none of the, the they were all real that was real mm-hmm. puppetry going on and uh I just Heather Jim's youngest daughter came to see us just about the time he had a show that opened here, and the museum invited me with the Henson approval to put my little collection of memorabilia into the show with gems. Oh wow! You know, so there was, there was that whole thing happening, and and I got to introduce the dark crystal and uh, take questions and answers afterwards, which was like a little bit like walking through a minefield, but it was. <laughs> Uh, I, I made it through without any serious blunders uh, uh, my wife said if she'd been there it would have killed her just waiting for me to say something <laughs> uh,
0: uh, I, I know we're getting a sort of near the hour mark here. I feel like I could talk to you for hours, but I want to ask a couple more things, if I may. Um, one of them is to do with uh, your time. You were teaching puppetry for film and TV for a while. I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about, obviously, trying to cram in everything that you teach is not easy No one answer, but sort of what are the kinds of things that you you taught when you were teaching it for a professional setting? It,
1: it's interesting because building and performing are so I'm one of the few people who brought them both together. Uh, Most Punch and Judy men in England buy their puppets. Uh, They don't make them. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, very poorly made paper mache puppets around. But uh, the, 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 the level of the show that we did was, well, George Spate, you know, the guy who is the specialist on Punch and Judy in England, called it the best fit up in England. So I just take great pride in that. Great pride in the Punch Fellowship. I belong to it. And I was the only American in the Punch Fellowship. So That's amazing. Because I was a swazzle user. That was the excuse. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it, it's interesting because you don't know why kids come to a puppet course. I'll be teaching another one-week uh uh, puppet workshop in Dallas uh, coming up within the next six months at, at the comic-con at this when, when the comic-cons going on in Dallas mm-hmm. uh, Zach McGinnis who's my agent as well as the guy who runs the comic-con um, uh, has has agreed to like the idea of doing a workshop so I'm going to do a complete workshop with all the material that I used in dark crystal and labyrinth to to uh, It's just a question of what can you do that helps people achieve what they really want to, you know, do they know what they want? Well, I want to do a puppet show. Let me tell you what that entails. You know, Uh, what do you know about fabric? Do you know a lot about fabric, two-way stretch, one-way stretch? I mean, do you know anything about the stuff that's used, you know, Kermit green felt uh, (laughs) or, you know, what... Because I don't do those kinds of puppets. These are my puppets. They're hard heads. You know, they're not flexible. They are essentially clubs <laughs> that, that pound away at each other for a half an hour <laughs> to, to the strains of, I dreamt I dwelt in marble halls. <laughs> but it, it's, it's these extreme differences in people that get immediately identified you know these are people who want to be puppeteers who want to make puppets who want to do a show who want to do this that 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 big ambitious thing now i have not been successful in designing that course it's better to do a week-long intense thing on one material and uh uh and let that be the beginning of a collection of events that you have in your life that lead you to where you want to be in terms of puppetry. But when I realize what has gone into my own background in terms of puppetry, my son and I chuckle, you know, because it's it's uh, ridiculous sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I you know, I have a jewelry bench out there with centrifuges. Half the time, I'm casting stuff or puppet costumes or mechanisms, and you know. And it's, 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 so I'm casting metal, I'm sculpting, I'm casting bronzes. I'm doing, after I get through with that, then I sit down and write a script. Uh, I had to write, for a script I'm working on, I had to, to, to write uh, a Spanish version uh, of Punch. You know, the, the Don Cristobal character in Spain, who's like Punch. And uh, so it's, you know... It can be frustrating. It can it can actually enough happening at one time that it diminishes how it might have looked had you had more time in one area or another to focus. But that's why I try to keep the area of sculpting kind of pristine and under control of myself. So at least I start with a good sculpt, right? <laughs> and it's it's uh, and, and then uh, once it you know dries and I get the paint on it where can I go? You know, where does it, and, and the painting became a big deal. And it's even a bigger deal in film because you're talking about, you're talking about major makeup jobs with this a similar, uh, using it like makeup, but you're using Windsor Newton. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it, it, uh, and that becomes a challenge, becomes a real challenge. It's like, uh, Oh, I don't know. Just to see what's what's here. Ah, oh, there it is. This is Scaramouche, right? hmm Who right off the bat gets his head knocked plumb off his body. hmm
0: That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. And that's
1: and doing something a sculpt. It, I, don't, I don't know if you can see as the head, mm-hmm. as the hat flips back, the expression changes.
0: Ah, I see. Because yeah, the the eyebrows, in a sense, this kind of you, it covers it. That's very clever. Yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I designed it. I made
1: it's it. Took me the better part of a lifetime to figure it out. <laughs> but it's uh, let me show you the punch because it. This is not a punch I use. It's far too heavy but he came out really well. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So he expresses himself, you know, as uh, with just the hat movement. Mm -hmm. And there isn't much in the way you, you you get to see a different character than when the hat's down, concealing the face. So you get a much more, uh, an opportunity to, to see it anyway. Mm
0: -hmm. uh, Rim of the hat is covering part of the eyes so yeah it's very clever very clever
1: let me show you this Can you find it? ah here he is i recently had a horrible fire in my studio and i lost a lot of puppets and stuff and, and really upsetting but uh, this is the punch that i use in in my and if you look at his mouth for instance i don't have to control it just the movement of his head and the mouth changes attitudes
0: that, that is much more of the sort of punch that I remember from my uh, when I was younger, the sort of the eyes being apart and the, the crazies oh, yeah. there. Yeah. yeah.
1: And he's very much very much the uh, Marty Feldman style yeah. of punch <laughs> that I think we all really appreciate because if Marty Feldman was anything, he was punch. <laughs> and he's got a really good hump. I like that. Oh, man. And he has a huge paunch stomach. But his costume, which was finished, burned off. Uh. but the costume saved the puppet himself. So I just oh. had to do a repaint job on the on the head. I think I stuck some new eyes in, and
0: uh, that. But that's all I had to do. I see. And those some of the you mentioned about jewelry and things. Do you obviously you mentioned you put some of the jewelry on the skeksis and that sort of things as well. And you're still making jewelry. Do you use them on? those sorts of puppets or do you use jewellery on just other things entirely what is the why do you make jewellery i'm interested the jewellery that i made uh, ended up being used on the
1: costumes mm-hmm. uh, the the biggest pile of that stuff were the the religious icons hanging on the, the ritual master's costume um because those were all, each one was sort of done with something else in mind, and Brian was involved, and it's, uh, I just was talking to, to my son, somebody, he was with about, at one point I had an incredible collection of Brian Frown drawings, but they were all on top of my brown paper desk cover in the shop, covered with, this week's paint on top of them, or you know, French enamel varnish spilled, or you know, where did Brian's drawing go? And you know, <laughs> so I ended up with having had a great collection of Brian's sketches, but uh, he he is so uh, yeah. To get to get back to Brian a little bit, uh, Brian, Brian's Brian's uh, very difficult. He's highly idealistic artist and the greatest frustration of his life is having been trained to be a commercial artist and not a fine artist and he's always tried to make that switch and it hasn't always worked very well and uh and i, I know he knows that so he has just sort of settled back into just being the best thing he is is prolific at a, at an astonishing level and working for somebody like that, it doesn't make any difference who gets the credit for what. Let me say that for sure. I mean, because the, the, the mutual respect and, and the even affection that, that exists, uh, that develops. It is just, it's just some, some of the most intense relationships I think I've ever had happened on those sets. And, uh, after all was said and done, I, I did succeed in getting at least ninety-five percent of one of my puppets on screen, but Brian came over and just so he could take credit, <laughs> made a little alteration on the nose, and that was about it. But that was that was this guy.
0: Oh, Do you yes, remember?
1: yes, uh, literally, I, I remember that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He ap- appears during the the, the battle. Yeah, he's a kind of a periscope character that could look over a wall. That's so amazing. I had a chance to do uh, a lot of research uh, for uh, armor and stuff in uh, at the museum in Vienna. So that was really cool. I was uh, able to sort of make a whole lot of sense. I, I knew a lot about armor to begin with, but this was like you know uh, that was primer stuff. This what I, I went into a master a master's course in in uh, vienna this stuff was amazing but uh and really helped with doing all all that armor uh for uh, for labyrinth the weaponry the armor everything mm. and there i don't think there's a single piece of it that i hadn't touched you know it's <laughs> some in some
0: way <laughs> between, well, you, uh, between consenting armourers <laughs> <laughs> well, you can take pride that Labyrinth is sort of also generally considered It's a more popular that like Dark Crystal is a bit more divisive as a film esoteric piece yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah whereas labyrinth I, i'd say we'll give you this is this, uh, saying on the show you get much more of the credit for labyrinth for that's the reason you got bowie and mike mccormick they're the reasons that labyrinth succeeded <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> i did an awful lot for bowie's costumes i definitely did
1: which was uh, terrific he's a lovely guy He just uh, was a lovely guy i miss oh, i miss these people as they drop off you know you miss them for the rest of your own life you know and uh And that was amazing to hear Jim's voice say, "Uh, Mike, look up from my desk and have Jim say, "Uh, I want you to meet Dave Bowie. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me while I change my nappies. (laughs) Jesus. That must have been a highlight. It was was a highlight, yeah, it was. And what was so funny was that, you know, uh, our, our little... Uh, lead mushroom. There, uh, what was her name? Jennifer Connolly. She, she, she really, she, her mother was uh, a, a major backstage mum, mm-hmm. and it, it, uh, she was simply the minute she'd done her bit, her mother escorted her, you know, off the set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm to her trailer and and that was that <laughs> nobody got to know her to really talk to her to see her nothing unlike carrie fisher you know which <laughs> was entirely the other problem <laughs> but uh, lovely human being but uh, what a strange story that was wasn't it uh you know that Debbie Reynolds uh, uh, Debbie, uh, uh, and Debbie uh, and Eddie Fisher, uh, yeah. I mean, just that uh, and this child who was a pure, absolute creature of the film world. And uh, I just always wonder. I, I mean, because her mom died, then she died a week later. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's and she didn't commit suicide. So what what what's going on there in a cosmic sense? You know, mm. I I was uh, so deeply touched when that happened. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Carrie Fisher was a obviously because you you met her as well because of your work on yeah uh, yeah
1: yeah first, very briefly.
0: Yeah, I I, I met Luke Skywalker.
1: <laughs> that, was, that was interesting in its own way. He was still. Uh, scarred oh from the car crash and things from from the motorcycle crash yeah yes that was created by the snow monster or whatever (laughs) it was called (laughs) yeah that's the reason reason that that character is there is to justify the
0: scars on his face it's a very clever way, to be fair. It, it, was, it was quite, when I heard about that when I was younger, I was like, oh yeah, Luke looks a bit different. But when I was younger, I was like, that's because he got smashed in the face by the wampa. Yeah. And it was like, oh no, in real life, something happened to him, so they wrote it in. It's very clever. Yeah,
1: and it worked. That's mm-hmm. what, It worked very well. Yeah. Yeah, that, that stuff, the walkers, all the stop motion stuff, you know, the Phil Tippett army of people hurting themselves by having to live under those sets. Mm-hmm. They lived under there. They slept under there. They eat pizza. You know? <laughs> oh man, it's but in it's, every seconds. You come bounding out up through your little trapdoor, move something, and go down again. You... Uh, uh, not me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just amazing when you have things like you know you get labyrinth and dark crystal, and also things like Star Wars where there's so much that goes on where you have to have so many specialists for so many different things, like something like, you know, star Wars, you've got the stop motion side, you've got the practical effects side, you've got the, uh, you know, the ships flying and things, that sort of side of things. Yeah. You've got all the post-production effects. There's, there's so many elements upon elements upon elements of things that just, you have live effects on, on set, you know, camera rolling, all those
1: effects that have to uh, be set. And, you know, it was, uh, I wish they'd do a film about just that, about uh, what that means when 18 different things have to happen at the same time. And it's very much like the old joke, you know, ready when you are, Mr. DeMille. Uh, do you know that joke? I don't know. I haven't heard it. Oh, it's a great one. It's the, it, Moses comes out, right? He's going to do the parting of the Red Sea. So Cecil B. DeMille comes out and says, look, this is this is huge. We're actually doing it with the ocean. You see, we've got these huge breakwaters and a cofferdam built. And this is, there's only, we have only one chance. So I'm putting six cameras on this. Everybody shakes. And the cameramen have been brought in from China. And, you know, it's a, it's a very special moment. And, uh. And he calls action, and all this stuff happens. You know, the, the Egyptian horde is washed away into the water. Just amazing. And it just recedes, and then the Jews nimbly go, you know, tripping on their way to manna, <laughs> a, a nice evening meal of manna. And, uh, and so he says, great, okay. Uh, camera number one, did we get that? Oh, I had a hair in the gate, sorry. Uh, okay, uh, camera number two. Actually, sir, what, one leg on slipped just as we started the camera rolling, and I had to reset. I missed it completely. And it goes all the way through. And it, well, finally, there's just one guy left. And he says, uh Bob, did you get it? And he says, Uh, well, we're ready when you are, Mr. DeMille. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not, not all that untrue. There was uh, my son was uh, uh, was there for the filming of that the scene with the snakes, that whole thing, that sequence, and the Anubis falls over partially and it breaks right the statue, and Stephen is in his trailer outside watching the video feed. Never on set, and so he sort of. Uh, said put me on the speaker and uh, after the shot and uh, he says "Uh, we're going to have to do that again we'll shoot it in the morning this was like 4.30 in the afternoon so guess what the guys did from 4.30 to the next morning they reset that whole thing they rebuilt the Anubis figure fresh plaster fresh paint everything Uh, wow wow I've never been so impressed with a situation. And when that was sort of all over, we got, because they immediately filmed the, uh, the bar scene in, in the, in the Himalayas, you know, the very, very, uh, how he mixes comedy with, with the violent horror, you know, is just amazing. Uh, and it works with indie anyway. And, uh, but that shot was over, and she, my son had us come after dinner. We went, we we ate out in Elstree, and then went over uh, to the set. Everybody was gone, completely clear. And uh, well, that's a great story. And uh, uh, and we got to, John took us to the cantina. We went outside, looked at the scenic painting for the you know the Himalayas baking soda salt sort of you know snow that was crunching under our feet it was it was quite spectacular and then in the cantina which was right you know right size it was it wasn't extended or anything it was quite cramped and everything was uh, very well orchestrated that was done in one take that entire scene oh wow yeah and it uh, there were there were inserts uh, you know but the basic the the major piece was one shot it uh, th- where the bullet h- hit the wall they had six other panels of walls to put in there f- to redo the bullet hits but they didn't have to so those were stacked against the wall with all the squibs in place and a big box of breakaway glass. And I said, Sean, let's nick some of this. I want to show Brian and Wendy how it works. So we put a bunch of them in his bag and a couple of them in my sack and uh, we got to Hampstead and, and uh, I, sh- I showed them said, and uh, I said, you got them. you know, they're very lightweight and this one's heavy and, uh, but they're breakaway glasses and I broke one on the, on the edge of the table wow, it's great. So we can do this to the puppets and you see it happen in in Labyrinth that they're using one of them. And, uh, and then Wendy took the, uh, picked up one and said, oh yeah, well, it hit me on the head with it. Only it was half an inch thick. It was not breakaway. It was a, a, a mistake. And this little trickle of blood running out of my hair well, it was very dramatic. I thought even my career is made or (laughs) or i'm dying on the spot (laughs) it was a very funny moment i'll never forget the look on her face as i just kind of almost went out on my feet you know it was just a real quonk on the bean live for that
0: stuff love it there's, it's the moments isn't it it's, it's the moments in life that the funny little 30 second snippets almost you can remember of the miasma of rubbish it's those little moments that make it worth it yeah they make it all sort of worthwhile in a strange kind of way and there's a
1: whole bunch of those in labyrinths uh, mm-hmm. uh and of course i did a lot of work with the gremlins the little little people were just so ter- i found them terrific to work with mm. like mike edmunds Kiran Shaw, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, the only person we didn't have any work with was Deep Roy, but then nobody likes Deep anyway. <laughs> and then I run into him at the Comic-Con. Deep Roy, Deep, how are you? Oh, <laughs> snarls at me with something.
0: <laughs> so I, don't,
1: I don't know. It was very funny.
0: Oh, man. I mean that that is absolutely incredible. I mean, it's it's been absolutely delightful speaking with you, uh, Mike. Sorry, I'm wiping the tears out of my eyes and laughing. Um, it's it's been absolutely delightful, and you've been so generous with your time speaking with me. It, it's been truly wonderful. So I wonder, just before I wrap everything up, is there any last words just to say to all of the listeners out there um, that you want to say before we finish this conversation? Uh,
1: d- just that it, it it's it's worth figuring out finally if you're if you're a buff and you like those pictures to really, to study them because everything is there. in those two pictures, you know, the whole story of, of, of puppetry, but it's also, uh, you, you figure that was Jim Henson's first film. He had not directed a feature length except with the Muppet Muppets. Mm -hmm. Right. But as far as a serious other kind of universe, that was his first. And Frank, you know, just with the the things that happened in that show that, that are just uh, so unique to Dark Crystal. Uh, I mean, just Augra's Australabe, you know, the, the, is just one of the great scenes of uh, since the Emerald City. I don't mm. know. You know, it, it is, it is a, a staggeringly effective scene. And all of the uh, you know, all, all of the puppeteering moments that people have, uh, are, you know, critiqued and have looked at and said, you know, this could be better. It's Jen looks very stiff. Wow. You know, that's because he didn't fit. And Jim's hand, he only had his fingers. That's all he could get into the head. For, you know. <laughs> so what do you do with that? You know, you make your suggestions and. uh wait to see what happens but uh he wouldn't go for another sculpt so wendy'd already done 26 i
0: think oh my lord (laughs) (laughs) the things you don't see
1: (laughs) no kidding no kidding but then you know coming back here and i don't i don't know it it becomes very difficult to to try to uh Put yourself in a perspective again. You, you wish you were, you know, what are these little helicopters flying around these days? Uh, then you could get gain some kind of altitude, some kind of advantage of looking down and, and seeing yourself and how you moved inside the framework of that whole thing. And what you would have done to improve your own performance, if you would. And what could have happened that would have improved the overall, in a politics sense, <laughs> that uh, it, it's all there. The information is all there. If you take your time and understand those scenes, research them, look at the making of, see, see what the spaces were really like. Uh, understand that you know from square one we were condensing space like crazy with the cameras. And And then the other thing to figure is that these were of their type of any type. that was pretty much the end of film as such. And it was also the beginning of animatronics on a remote, scale so you're the puppeteers were having characters that were doing things blinking their eyes and and it was early days but we used it to the hilt i mean every you know they were there and it was a total training retraining puppet retraining just responses and these things that the, the, the prep time, the, the rehearsal literal rehearsal time with the puppets To uh, But it was, you, you watched it evolved and quite honestly, it was watching theater at its best. You're watching theater with its confusions, animosities, murderous intent in some cases, uh, you, you are seeing the full circle of, of theatre, everything it has ever been and probably ever will be as a new technology drops in every 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, you know what's going to happen. And it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. Uh, do you know who Wolf Mankiewicz was? Uh, no, I don't think I do. He was very big and uh, the, the Mankiewicz family in London was very, very big. Hmm. Golders Green collection of uh, European Jews. Hmm. And Wolf was, uh, uh, over the last 10 years of his life, was a very good friend uh, in Santa Fe and in London, both back and forth. And uh, even in Ireland, we got together. So, you know, we were actually quite good friends and very tragic the way that whole, because the last 10 years of his life, he had liver cancer. And somehow or another, uh, he's he stayed he stayed alive. I'm not quite sure how he did it. And then uh, at the very last minute, and gorgeous, lovely Jungian, top-rate analyst, Oxford-trained, and got this very rapidly moving Alzheimer's situation. So the whole end of my knowing them was just so sad. So you know, and but it made me just question how much energy are you going to put into being pissed off because the shot doesn't work? <laughs> you know, how much energy do you want to put into, to the affect of being the angry producer or the angry director or the, and this is something over the centuries. I believe the English have done very well in observing in their culture is, is what is necessary to get the job done in terms of interrelationships, interpersonal relationships and things. And that's something that, uh, great lessons that I took on those two shows about living in England, you know, and as, you know, you, you're a theatrical person, so you sort of become English yourself in a funny kind of way in an effort to understand the culture. I mean, I had, we'd already immigrated in when my son was six we had moved to England and immigrated and it fell apart because of my parents actually just destroying the situation and we had to come back to this you know to the states but we were living in Bath and it's uh, and, and, and in very close proximity to all levels of English society from you know uh, uh, from what would you call them? The very, the very, in terms of class structure, as the lowest position to the, you know, good God. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, we were, because we were American, we were privy to royals in some cases, which was kind of, I don't even talk about that stuff. <laughs> uh, because it's, it sounds impossible. Because it doesn't happen for most Englishmen. <laughs> It does for some silly yank fumbling around, and uh, but the uh, and that's what I see the whole thing the film uh, and uh, Pauline Kael is, is always good you know reading uh, about w- Wolf had an Academy Award for doing uh, the bespoke overcoat a, a mm-hmm. time, half hour short film which got an Academy Award yeah forty five minute film and Pauline Kael called it arguably the best short film ever made and I agree with her and having 10 years to talk with Wolf about how it was done you know was and I was at my filmic hungriest at that point and he just fed this to me like you know, like my morning porridge <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I do miss him miss so many of those guys but it looks like you know connections were going back made contact with David Barkley again Uh, uh, Mike Edmonds is back in the mix and it's because of Comic Con to a large extent and uh, do you know uh, uh, Zach McGinnis, is that name familiar to Comic Con
0: or agent? Not specifically no, I mean I've been to a couple of Comic Cons but no I'm not aware of who that individual is specifically yeah,
1: so I mean, he's you know sort of running my professional life as my agent these days. So, so it works out you know really well. And this workshop is, you know, a big, a, a big item. And it's it's uh, he wants to, uh, you know, really run this thing as a national event. And and he wants to pull only twenty people for this workshop. So he wants to charge an enormous amount of money for it. <laughs> But it's going to be a rare workshop. It's going to be, you know, kind of uh, amazing. So how much can you get done? I don't know. I've seen what Brian and Wendy do in three days with a workshop. Yeah. yeah. And it's staggering. I mean, their, their, their ability to make is just uh, overwhelming sometimes. Overwhelming. But uh, here, I'll show you very, very quickly. Yeah, please do, yeah. Puppets. This, these are, this is...
0: Uh, oh, wow.
1: This was a group a group of puppets we did for uh, uh, a, a grocery ad.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, I couldn't work out what that was going to be, either a very strange kids' TV show or grocery ad.
1: <laughs> and it, it worked so incredibly well that it's sort of famous in its own right. And it's what it does, you know, doing advertising stuff is is fun and working for television is fun because it's quick. They they uh, they pay quickly. You know, it just it's a nice environment to work with. And it's for that that I also take responsibility for doing the first talking toilet. (laughs) It's very strange. The claims to fame we
0: have. (laughs) Is that the number one? So Beyond Punch and Judy, Dark Crystal and Labyrinth, but number one is the first talking toilet.
1: (laughs) The talking toilet. Has to be.
0: God. That's absolutely excellent. And I've taken plenty of screenshots and things as well of the the puppets that you've shown as well, because I'm going to be showing a lot of people those, not only listeners of the show, but also friends and family and things, because... Yeah, so many of my family are massive fans of Dark Crystal and Labyrinth and puppet work. And my girlfriend's dad, he loves puppets. He's got a few of his own and things as well. So it's, it's incredible. Oh, that's right. yeah. yeah. He's an Italian gentleman, so he lives in Italy. And he understands puppetry. Yes. At a
1: cultural level. Exactly. Now, it's interesting because Punch and Judy is understood in England. But puppetry at that level, all they have is Punch and Judy. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So it's well understood. But the rest of the history of puppetry in England is pretty much ignored. And that's a shame. But Wow. That's so cool. So if you're going to build a crocodile instead of two pieces of wood. <laughs> <laughs> build a crocodile. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, um. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a. I've, I've noted down what you said, uh, the sort of Dallas Comic Con things, and I'll look into that as well. And uh, we'll email, and we can figure it out. Um, because I'll put a link in the description and things. Stays. We'll stay in touch for sure. 100. percent I'd like to, you
1: know, get some feedback on on this as well. Mm-hmm. To uh, to track stuff that happens, but this has been a real treat, and it's. Uh, I think you've done a something like a real service for a lot of people
0: (laughs) it's you who's done the service i just want to put a spotlight on you wherever i could just any of my listeners i just want i want people like yourself the, the unsung heroes of big moments in culture it's so important that people know the history of things and certain elements of things and to know the people like yourself who are once responsible for so many elements of their childhood and people's view of puppetry and cinema going forward. And I just think they're really important. So I want to say thank you for taking your time to speak to me and doing everything you've done and continue to do for puppetry. It's, uh,
1: yeah. And and one would hope, you know, that I can do more and I am actively trying to do some of that stuff, uh, here in Albuquerque, which is, uh, quite honestly, Santa Fe is the arty town. Albuquerque is, is a, a, a cultural wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. it's it's. We got one of the better theater departments in the Southwest, and that doesn't even help. <laughs> 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 the university does great, but I do you know show and tells at the university. and uh, I, I'm more interested. You can't teach. This is the message.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You can't teach people, anything. You can get them interested, and then they teach themselves. And I think that really is true of all age groups. If you can get them excited, they will learn. Interested and excited. Very important words in a funny kind of way, because they're the <laughs> channel to actually learning. And I've written a complete idea for it, a really upmarket TV show that takes a character of mine, a, a, a rook basically. His name is Thaddeus Rook and uh, he's, he's a great character but uh, puts him in a situation in 14 or you know 1340 whatever Heidelberg is uh, the pet of an alchemist and uh, anyway everything gets blown to hell in this uh, laboratory. He and the chemist get flung into the stratosphere with this incredible gunpowder charge that goes off inside this chimney-like vertical. Ch- you know, boom! They're gone, and they molecularly conjoin into another character, who is this very stupid, self-centered alchemist who knows everything, and this rook who is just an eternal sponge who wants to drink up every piece of information he encounters. And I just thought, okay, I've created my own Frankenstein monster to send through time and space. And he just, he, he's unstable. So he, he vanishes and appears in another time zone other time period. So it goes from 1320 to, and he's trying to figure oh my god he lands in a cheese cart and breaks the cheese and the owner of the cheese is just outraged. He doesn't know how to charge for these strange dissimilar shapes. However, just down the road there's a guy who could help his name is Archimedes (laughs) Do you see how I'm going with that? That is so brilliant And I think it would make an incredible series. And I've done a terrific presentation. And, uh, you know, I've got people ready, you know, to do a pilot for this thing who would do it for absolute nothing. Uh, I mean, literally, just to see that the project itself would go forward. And uh, it ends, uh, you know, he goes everywhere. But one of the things he does is he pops between the interfacing time issue, right? He pops into Albert Einstein's world. Mm. And they get to discuss relativity in the simplest direct ways. And just to be able to present ideas in a palatable fashion, which is something you have to admit, very few teachers in England or America really do. Yes. That this is, a place to start to create the interest that that child can now understand with this this instructor, this teacher, this professor in front of them, doesn't know his head from his behind, (laughs) and it is up to the student to isolate the true, the real, the information coming out of this other human being and make it palatable to himself or herself and, and teach themselves because of this authority that isn't doing the job very well, but has the information. How do you draw that? How do you actually milk it for what you need as the extraordinary creature you are? It's, uh, but it's an ongoing project. It's, it's something that keeps me, keeps me working.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds like a brilliant idea and you're, you're totally right there, you know the best teachers don't give you the information necessarily, they inspire you to want to find the information and that's how stuff exactly, sticks exactly right that's perfect, I mean, you are an incredibly inspirational individual and I don't think enough people know of you or maybe even say that to you, but you, you are brilliant and you have you know, it's ignited more inspiration for me. And I'm going to look into a lot more stuff to do with uh, puppetry and that sort of thing. Cause it's, it's just right. so intriguing. Uh, so many elements of it, um, which I want to thank you for. And so, yeah, uh, we've had a wonderful conversation. Very last thing to say, then thank you for coming on the show. And is there a final thing that you say, and then we'll, we'll hang this call up. A final thing.
1: If you're interested, get out there and wag those puppets. That's the only thing that helps.
0: Perfect. (laughs) Absolutely wonderful. As I said, Michael, it's been so much fun uh, speaking with you and getting to see all of your puppets. And I've, you know, this uh, Skype records the video uh, as well. And I've got the, uh, screenshots I've taken as well so people will be able to see uh, these puppets and things if you're willing I'll put this on uh, YouTube when the episode gets released so people can actually see some of the puppets you've been showing because I oh, think
1: terrific, terrific. it'd
0: be lovely for people to see those that world has seen none of this stuff really yeah
1: so that would be interesting oh excellent
0: Yeah. Cool. well I'll make a specific uh, I'll, I'll let you know obviously via email and stuff when I get this uh, released and all that sort of things it will be a few weeks down the line but I'll, I'll keep you posted and stuff. I email, we'll go from there, but we'll definitely keep in touch. Please keep me posted with all the, uh, stuff you get up to the things. Cause I'm always yeah. interested to hear about it.
1: And you know, it, uh, uh, I'm very interested in, in zoom as a platform for, uh, education, mm. particularly in terms of my areas of, of, of art learning. And, uh, uh, it, it becomes very very challenging to try to take something as concrete as driving a nail and trying to turn it into an aesthetic experience for a television show it's very challenging but I, I think that it is would be my experience with with it so far the uh, talking to children is that uh, and these were kids all different locations across the country uh, mm-hmm. all organized in a little grid of little kids on my screen that, uh, they brought so much to it. And it's, uh, and the woman who runs that program uh, is actually a friend of mine in Santa Fe. So she and I are working on the idea of trying to construct a functioning workshop that could work on, on, in a zoom setting that, uh, uh and I also, I wanted to talk and Brian frowned is, uh, up for exploring that world a little bit too. I think I can drag him screaming out of Chatterford. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent idea. I think a lot of people would really appreciate that. I think it would work really well.
1: It would be wonderful. Yeah. Be. I mean, because Brian, I mean, it's just, you know, a couple of whiskeys. The two of us are, uh, a, a dynamic force <laughs> <laughs> takes takes at least a bottle of jamesons <laughs> but it uh I feel like Roger Moore uh, <laughs> god that world and this is what i've found over 80 years of looking at it that world encompasses everything i need to know about living on this planet and trying to give that experience to other people that's that's it so puppetry yeah what can i say it's great and you get to play with dolls
0: (laughs) an excuse (laughs) (laughs) oh my lord wonderful once again michael you've been so generous with your time and it's been so much fun having you on the show and I, I know that my listeners are gonna love seeing the puppets as well as listening to your expertise on all of them and i know it's obviously getting very late on your end and so yeah we'll, we'll hang this up then i mean there's Great. no um there's no social media or anything like that that you're uh, connected to is it's just keep an eye out really on comic cons and various other stuff that you're involved with okay i will <laughs> we,
1: can, we, we can do a catch-up at some point
0: I would love to. Yes, I would absolutely love to have you on the show again. The, the door is always open, so we'll keep in contact and it will definitely happen again. We will indeed. Mike, very nice to see the show with you. It was absolutely a pleasure to meet another cool Mike as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> always fun to meet someone with the same name. <laughs> Not quite all the Michael McCormick's in Ireland, but still. <laughs> all, all mix should know each other. exactly awesome well I will leave you to your evening then once again thank you so much for your time Michael it's genuinely been an absolute pleasure thank you Mike yeah hopefully we do it again 100% I'll speak to you soon then Mike in a bit Bye 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 And that's the end of the conversation. Thanks as always for tuning in, guys. As I said in the start, there will be a video uploaded to YouTube. If it's not there at the moment of you listening to this, it will be uploaded very, very shortly just because my laptop takes a little while to export videos and whatnot. But I've included a link in the description, so make sure you check it out so you can see some of the puppets that Michael was showing me because some of them are really, really cool, especially people who have grown up in England who know what Punch and Judy are and know what kind of puppets they are. It's just cool to see those kind of things up close. Plus, also make sure you tell me all the nice things about Michael McCormick. He really loved coming on the show and things, and I'll definitely be having him on again in the future. But yeah, tell me anything about this show that you enjoyed, and I'll pass them on to him. He's he's such a lovely guy. He just deserves as much adulation as possible. So what have we got coming up? So I've got a two-parter recorded with Tom Everett, the actor. We speak about stagecraft and things quite a lot, which is quite an interesting conversation. I've got a conversation recorded with Francesca Rianon. She is the host and creator of the Writer's Voice podcast. That was a radio show slash a podcast for like 14 years, and it's still going. So that's an incredible conversation I had with her. I've also had a conversation recorded with Chris Brayton of the I Like to Like Things podcast. And I went on his show very recently, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we had a really really cool conversation about positivity the modern man and all sorts of other things that's a two-parter as well so i probably won't be releasing that for a few weeks to come and i've also got a couple of other things in the pipeline i've got bz the world, man with the smoothest voice in the world coming back on the show as well with stevie ray and we're going to talk about his latest green lantern fan film because he released one last year so he's got another one which is very exciting got a couple of other things in line for recording as well and i've been lining up a lot of guest spots as well so there's a lot of other random podcasts you'll see me popping up here and there on but in the description to this episode i've included some of the links to the other stuff i've been involved with you know the i like to like things podcast what's the topic talking about low-key uh, geek talks on fantastic universes feed frank burns i like the sound podcast so loads of cool things there And um, i also wanted to highlight that i've got my patreon patreon.com slash genuine chitchat and i've just released mine and megan's talk on Spider-Man 3 completely for free it is 30 minutes long and you can either go over to Patreon um, even if you haven't got an account or anything like that and you don't want to support the show on there just scroll down really far and you'll find our discussion on The Witcher The Phantom Menace of Spider-Man 3 which anyone can listen to but instead of just having to scroll all that way I have included a link in the description to listen to Spider-Man 3 you can either click the link or you can type it in yourself but for clarity it is case sensitive so it has to be bit.ly slash Spider-Man with a capital S the number Number three, and then capital A, capital T, so Spider-Man 3AT with the S and Spider-Man capitalized and the A and the T as well. So you know, make sure you check that out even if you don't want to contribute financially, please check out my Patreon and take a little look around. As I said you can support the show for as little as one pound a month and then you'll get access to at least one Afterthoughts episode a week as well as other bonus content and things. Uh, me and Megan did a road trip a little while ago so you can listen to that on there as well for free and me and Megan uploaded our road trip around Somerset we did a little while ago it was about half an hour chatting in the car about going to cider orchards and things like that and the Wellington Monument so that was a lot of fun so you get exclusive content on there both me and Megan talk about movies and series as well as general stuff that we get up to and then the slightly higher tiers you get access to the feed of Patreon where you get early access to photos for the Star Wars podcast, uh, photos of some of my collectibles, of my tortoise a few other bits and pieces there as well so anyone who's willing to support the show it means the absolute world to me uh, because obviously I do not make money from this, I am technically losing money making a podcast because of the running fees and things but it is a passion of love and anyone who listened to this please you know share on social media talk to your friends about it all those sort of things if you can't contribute financially i do completely understand but yeah aside from that guys the only other thing to mention really is my star wars show i mentioned at the end of every episode and it's called star wars comics and canon on the genuine chit chat youtube channel you can find star wars comics and canon episodes as well as a sort of genuine chit chat so i've got all of the star wars episodes in there they've also been uploaded to playlists and things so if you don't know where to start the start from episode one or you can just kind of flit around on whatever comics interest you but it is specifically made for anyone who's never read a single Star Wars comic before and they want to get into that realm or people who just want to read them but don't have the time because there's hundreds of them and you just want to know what the general narratives are and how they connect to the other universe and things all those sorts of bits of information that's what you can find from the Star Wars show specifically made for someone who's never read a comic and wants to get into it who just wants to know the narrative of some of the stories who doesn't have time to read the comics or if you've read all the Star Wars comics and you just want to refresh without having to to dig them out and read them all again or look up all the characters you see that you kind of spot that seem familiar but you're not too sure about that because that's what I do I read these comics when there's a familiar name I give you guys a bit of information where you may remember that So I'm also tackling the War of the Bounty Hunters crossover event each month now as well. I've just released the first part of that. That is the prelude. Uh, So it's the first five issues. War of the Bounty Hunters is like 34 issues long and it's going to go for like six months. So if people can't afford or don't want to have to do all those things to get all those issues, just tune into my podcast and you'll be able to listen to the narrative of the story after Empire Strikes Back when Boba Fett is transporting Han Solo's frozen carbonite corpse, trying to take it to Jabba to cash in his bounty and then he hits a lot of hurdles along the way of being stolen and it turns out that everyone in the galaxy is seemingly after Han Solo so if you want to hear about all those sort of things you know I've included a link in the description but as I said go over to Genuine Chit Chat's YouTube channel or if you're listening to podcasts on a podcast app or Spotify or whatever go to Comics in Motion and you'll find it there but also in Spotify if you type in Star Wars comics in canon and then a character you like like Darth Maul Kylo Ren or something like that a relevant episode will come up too so With all that said, guys, thank you so much for listening. As always, please, please, please hit me up and let me know what you thought of this episode. I'll pass on all the feedback to Michael McCormick and uh, I will definitely be having him on the show again at some point in the future. But yeah, exciting stuff going forward. This was a really fun episode to do. Check it out on YouTube. Go over to Afterthoughts on Patreon for free stuff as well and all that sort of jazz. Thank you, as always, so much for listening, guys. I really, really appreciate each and every one of you listening, especially up to the end of this rambling nonsense. And I'll talk to you guys next week with... I haven't fully decided which episode I'll be releasing, so we'll figure it out from there. Thanks, as always, guys. I'll talk to you next week.